This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Good morning. This is Rick G, the Prince of Profits. And I have with me here Ron Patel, the Sultan of Sales. And today we're very pleased to present to you seven steps to success in sales. So, Ron, let's get this party started. All right. Thank you, Rick. And good morning to everyone out there. I hope we are have our sales hats on. And we'll get the program started. So today's program is called Seven Steps to Success in Sales. So I'm going to give you these seven steps along with details to go along with it, as well as real-world examples from my experience and from some other things. And throughout the call, Rick is going to lend his insights on some of these concepts also. So the first step to success in sales, and this is going to be in order. So the first step is you need to separate your suspects and your prospects. So what's the difference between a suspect and a prospect? Well, a prospect is someone who has a need or a pain that they need satisfied or someone that's looking for something. Or someone who stands to benefit from what it is that you have to offer. They have the money to pay for the service or the product that fixes their pain or need. And this one is important. They have the money. Rick and I, when we're masterminding together, talking about uh, new markets we want to approach to sell a product or service to, we always have our uh, little acronym of PWM, players with money, people that have money that can afford the product or service uh, that we're trying to sell to them or prescribe to them. Now, a suspect, on the other hand, is an unqualified lead. This is someone that's just happened to stumble upon something that they may or may not care about. This is that person that you meet at a networking event. When you just met them for the first time, you have no idea what they do for a living, and they really have no idea what you do for a living, and they're just a suspect, someone that we have no idea if they can use your product or service or if they have the pain or whatever that uh, fixes. The suspects can be identified as a result of good lead generation marketing or two-step marketing. What I mean by that, sorry, is a prospect can be identified as a result of good lead generation marketing. So a prospect is, of course, qualified for that. So the prospect is qualified for it, and the lead generation marketing. Rick, can you kind of touch on that for me? Well, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that can really help your sales prospect is to do some marketing to help deliver uh, pre-interested, pre-motivated, pre-qualified prospects into your to your sales process. 
And so this is a great way to sort of separate the suspects from the, the qualified prospects uh, by providing them with some information, getting them to raise their hand and kind of announce themselves as someone who's, who's interested in what you have to offer but wants to learn more, uh, wants to know whether you're someone that they can trust, someone who, who knows what they're talking about in terms of providing the, the solution to the problem that they have. And so with, with lead generation marketing, you're not trying to, to sell somebody on that first step. You're really just trying to identify who might be interested and qualified in, in what you have to offer. And so it can be a very powerful process that then makes the selling process, once it begins, once you get face-to-face -face with the prospect or you're on the phone with somebody, um, just makes the sales process a lot easier because you know you have someone in front of you that's sort of pre-positioned to, uh, to be a good candidate for what you do. Thank you. So let me give you an example. So my uh, my core business, Just Dine In, we're a multi-restaurant delivery service. Um, so what that is, is we deliver food from 50 different restaurants that typically don't offer delivery. And where we focus on to make our, our core amount of our money is the corporate catering side of our business. What we're known for um, is delivering food to the home. So you get home from work, you don't feel like cooking and you sit on the couch and you're just like, uh, I've got nothing in the fridge, I don't want to go anywhere. I can pick up the phone or go online and 45 minutes later food arrives at your door. And it's a very convenient service and people that haven't heard about it always tell me that, oh, that's the greatest idea in the world. And I think it is because I came up with the idea, but the concept has existed for many years in other cities. So I just did it here. But where we make our money is on the corporate catering side. So if I go to an office and they're having a training um, or a lunch and learn, as a lot of people call it, they have food for about 50 people, and that order could be anywhere between 400 and seven, $800. Well, it's the same amount of time, the same amount of cost, the same amount of risk that goes into delivering that $500 order, let's say, then does go into delivering the $20 order to you and your significant other. So the only major difference is my profit margin is much, much larger, and the average ticket, of course, is much, much larger. So that's where we put our focus. Uh, we've actually hired a, uh, a salesperson whose full-time job, his name's Eric, and his full-time job is to go after that corporate catering business. So we, we don't send him out to the field, and he doesn't just walk into every retail store in the city. Uh, he doesn't uh, just take a, let's throw it at the wall and see what sticks method. He uses the Biz Journals book, the, the, the one here in Albuquerque where I live, is the uh, New Mexico, uh, what's it called, Albuquerque Business First. Now they just changed the name from New Mexico Business Weekly. The Albuquerque Business First. Well, they have a, a journals book called the Book of Lists. And this qualifies categories for you. So we can look at the number of architecture firms and see how many employees there are in each architecture firm. So he knows before he even calls them or goes in there how many employees there are. Um, what we do for them a lot of the time is a lunch and learn. So if there's a window company that's trying to sell their windows to the architecture firm, they're going to make an appointment with the architecture firm and say, look, we want to buy you guys lunch and show you why you should use our windows in that new school you're building. Uh, so they hope that they can feed them, have a good experience, and uh, they will buy the windows from that particular vendor. He can find out how many lawyers are in a law firm, and he can find out how many engineers are in an engineering firm. These are some of the companies that we've identified that have a lot of meetings that need food provided for them and have got budgets to spend, or as I said earlier, people with money to spend to fix the problem that they have. So he'll make some preliminary calls and find out how often they order food, find out who the person is that's ordering food, because it doesn't matter if you're talking to the lead engineer on a project. It's usually not them. That lead engineer has an administrator or an assistant that's 
makes the food order and is the one that has to make sure there's enough food for everybody and make sure you don't run out of food because food is a very personal thing. So only then will he proceed past step one to steps two through seven of the seven steps of sales success. Once he's qualified, that's, uh, that person as a prospect and not as a suspect. If he walked into every pawn shop, cash advance store, or Walgreens, he would never get the catering orders that we get that are hundreds of dollars in catering to people place with us every single day. Well, Ron, that's a great point that I want to amplify on a little bit. It's the, the important element here, a uh, couple of things. One is really knowing your who. Who is a targeted, qualified prospect? What does that prospect look like? Uh, a lot of businesses get caught in the trap of they think that, that what they have to offer is, you know, they can sell it to anybody. But we always like to say that if what you have is for everybody, it's really for nobody. So when you know your who, who you really want to target, who can really best benefit from what you sell, you can identify that person, you can communicate with him in a language that will really connect with him. And the second uh, part that I want to uh, emphasize is, is what Ron said about qualifying a lead in terms of the ability to pay. Now, if you're sell, you might have the greatest product in the world, you might have a good prospect who really wants that, uh, has a problem that, that your service can, can solve, but the fact of the matter is that if that person doesn't have the money to invest in the solution, that's not a real prospect. And, you know, we are all in business to make money and make a profit. Uh, we do want to help people, but if the, the people that we want to help don't have the ability to invest in what we do to help solve their problems, then we don't really have a qualified prospect. Okay, thank you. So the second step to success in sales is to earn trust from the prospect. So you've all heard the old saying that people buy from people they know, like, but most importantly, people they trust. If there's no trust, there's not going to be a sale. Let's think about it. Do you, do you like buying a car from a sleazy used car salesman? No, because he doesn't come across as trustworthy. I mean, would you eat sushi from a place that also sells hamburgers, hot dogs, and batteries? Probably not, because <laughs> sushi well, you needs know, to be clean. Ron, uh I don't know if you know this, but there is a Vietnamese restaurant in town here uh, that also does auto emissions testing. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather get my pho from a place that concentrates only on food. And pho, by the way, is really good. A lot of people call it pho, but it's P-H-O. The correct pronunciation is exactly how Rick said it, pho. And, yes, it is delicious, but not when it has oil in it <laughs> <laughs> or Valvoline oil, not uh not oil from the, the, the frying pan. So, well, thanks for throwing that in there, Rick. Um, how do you earn that trust then? Okay, Make the interaction about the prospect and not about you. All right, Think of an interview. The, if the interviewer talks more than the interviewee, and I'm talking about like an interview on the radio, okay? if the, inter the person interviewing them talks more than the person they're interviewing, there's really not much point to the interview. So often people have their own set way, their their agenda on how they're going to operate and try to close a sale. They'll often ramble on and on and fail to listen to their prospect. They just they have this one way that they've been taught from some book. Um, those of you who attended the Small Biz Summit may recall that I talked about how there's there's operations manuals that teaches sales and people just go to that operations manual and that's exactly how they sell and that's the only way to sell. And it's pretty uh, one-dimensional thinking, if you ask me. You want to ask detailed questions. 
and more importantly, listen to their answers. Then based on their answers, craft your approach to the rest of the sale. Listen to them. If you haven't earned the trust, though, it doesn't matter how good the stuff is that you have to say. All it's going to do is go in one ear and out the other. You know, and if you ask enough questions uh, that make the prospect think to himself, hmm, that's a really great question. I hadn't thought about that. If you're in a sales interview and you can actually stump your prospect two or three times, what what is the psychology behind that? This person is going to be thinking to himself, okay, this guy is not just pitching me something. He's not just trying to sell me something. He's asking me questions that make me think. And I really feel like this person not only cares about me, but he really knows what he's talking about by asking these smart questions. This might be someone who can really help me to, to answer these questions and, and solve my problem. So it shows that you care and it shows that you're smart. And plus, when you ask questions rather than just you know reciting a, a canned presentation, and then you shut up and listen for the answer, the prospect is eventually going to tell you really all you need to know to help you close the sale. Absolutely. And let me give you a bad example, Rick. Um, I had a recent encounter from, uh, from our business, Justine, and I have a business partner. Uh, his name is Jared. I've known him since I was 16 years old. We're, we're great friends and we're business partners. Uh, and he handles the money in the business. And, and we were looking at switching all of our bank accounts over to another bank. We're not happy with our current bank. I'm not going to name my current bank or the bank that we were looking at switching to. Um, but the people from this new potential bank are good people. They introduced themselves well at a networking event. So I gave him a shot at the meeting. So like I said, Jared makes all the decisions. I told them that he's the one that they have to convince. Um, but I gave him kind of a warning. So Jared is the exact opposite personality than I am. He's very cut and dry. Rick, you've met him. You understand this, right? Right, right. He's very cut and dry. He doesn't like long meetings. He doesn't like to sit and chat. He wants to get straight to the point and get it over with. Now, I told them, look, if you talk to him that way, and I'm trying to help them because I like these people, if you talk to him that way, it'll be effective. But if you don't, you're going to be in for a treat because Jared's very blunt, and he likes to get right to the point. So I told them that if they were prepared, you know, that's the way to talk to Jared. So meeting day arrived. So the guy that shows up, same guy I met at the networking event, he has one way of selling and only one way. And when I say only, you can see what's coming. He starts talking about it's all about the relationships. Now, to me, when I have a banker, I value the relationship. Now, Jared, he's the kind of guy that doesn't like to be bothered, doesn't like to sit down and take long meetings. He does all of his banking online and really is not too concerned with the relationship with the banker. If he needs something, he'll go into the bank. Otherwise, he does everything online. He does mobile check deposits. He uses ATMs. He just likes to get in, get out, and not have to have a long, long conversation or sit into a sales, sit and listen to a sales presentation. So he used this word relationships, and Jared mentioned quickly, relationships is okay, but for me, the easy of use on the online services is a hot button for me, and also the fees. The current bank that we're with has a lot of fees, and these are my hot buttons, he said, and, and more importantly, I want to see if you can save us money. Uh, the relationship is great, but more importantly, I want to see if you can save us money and if the online services are easy to use because we use the online bill pay to pay our vendors. We use wire transfers. Uh, transfers within the bank, transfers to other banks. So that's what he was more concerned with. He continued, and this is the, the banking uh, professional, uh, for lack of a better term, he continued to go on and on about relationships. He wouldn't tell him anything about the fees. He wouldn't tell him, show him anything about the online services. 
And even more amazing, before he even closes the meeting, he requests to set up another meeting to sit down with him and talk further. And like I said, for me, this would have been fine. I'm a relationships guy. That's how I run my businesses. That's how I uh, qualify my prospects, and that's how I close sales is through relationships. But for Jared, it was quite frustrating. And needless to say, I let the two of them talk. I excused myself in the meeting at the close, but I, I'm not too confident that Jared's going to be switching our bank accounts to this bank. And why? Because he didn't listen to his prospect. Um, another example I, that just comes to my mind is uh, I just got a new got a new dog. His name's Jackson. He's an adorable little boxer mix. He's two years old. He's still a puppy. I got him from the Humane Society, and, and I'm starting to earn his trust. Now, I know this isn't a business example, but try to take this example and apply it to business. So every night I have to go through a sales pitch with Jackson. I need him to pee outside. I need him to poop outside. And then the big part of the sale is I need him to go into his little crate so he can go to sleep. If we leave him out, he's going to pee on the carpet and mess up the house and chew on the couches. So we put him in this crate at night, and it's a good way to train a puppy to be done. I need him enclosed there. But he won't go outside unless I do. He, if I come inside, he comes inside. If I go back outside and try to trick him, he knows what's coming. He's a smart dog. And he, he jumps back in before I can even chance to shut the door. So I have to find a way to give him an incentive. So what do I do? I walk outside, and I sit down in the chair. Now, if I'm out there with him, he has a pee and then does whatever else he has to do. And then he's ready to go. We can come back inside and, and close for the night. I still have to do the big sale, or I've got to get him in the crate. So what other incentive do I have? Well, I found a treat. So I get a treat from him, one of these little beef treats. I go into the crate. I place it in the back of the crate, and he very happily gets into the crate and eats the treat. I lock the door. He will moan a little bit, but that's just part of being a puppy. And as soon as I go up to bed, he's fine, lays down, goes back to sleep. What's funny about this example, though, is it's 6.30 a.m., and this happens every morning, the roles reverse because Jackson becomes the salesman. And he starts crying and selling me on why we need to go to the dog park. And he's pretty convincing, and he provides me with enough of an incentive by his crying that I do give in, and usually by about 6.40, we are on our way to the dog park to play with all the other canines and start our day off together. So, yes, it's not a business example, but there is a lesson there, and I hope you can take that lesson from there. The third step is accurately identifying the prospect's needs. Okay, let me say that again. Accurately identify the prospect's needs. So think of a doctor. You don't go into the doctor with a problem and he just magically knows what it is and solves it for you before you tell him or her what it is that's going on. Okay, you go into the doctor, the doctor's going to ask you questions. They're going to touch a certain area of the body where you have your pain or something that's wrong, something that needs attention. He's going to look at your medical charts. He's going to look at your history. He or she's going to gather as much information as possible to prescribe the correct solution for whatever it is you went into the doctor for. Now, good salespeople do this. Your prospect, not suspect, your prospect feels comfortable enough and trusts the salesperson enough to accept whatever his or her prescription is to the correct solution to satisfy their need or fix the pain that is ailing them. So if you go to the doctor because you have, let's say, a sore ankle, why do they take your blood pressure? Why do they measure your height, your weight, and they do the rest of your vital signs? Well, it's because they know that everything in the body is connected. They want to make sure that you're completely healthy and that something else isn't causing it. 
And if there is something else going on, a lot of the time things can be found out by doing a full examination while you're in there. So let me give you another real-world example. Uh, for many years, I worked for a company called Go Wireless. We were a uh, cell phone cell, uh, cell phone store. We had uh, I managed a bunch of stores in uh, in Arizona. That's what moved me to New Mexico. And people would come into the store. This is back when I was on the sales floor, and this is what I teach my salespeople to do later on when I got promoted. People would come in for a car charger. didn't matter what phone they had. Most of the chargers were universal. If it was an LG phone, it could be a Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, whatever. So I would ask them why they needed it, okay, and why would I do that? I would say, well, maybe it's a battery issue. Maybe it's a phone issue. Sometimes if the battery's going down really quickly, it's got nothing to do with the battery or the car charger. It's because there's an issue with the phone. But I'd start asking them, what kind of phone? How long have you had it? What issues do you have with the phone? I start making my, my questions to, to diagnose what the problem is. Now, at the end of the day, I could find out that they need a different solution and even make them, and sorry, and save them some money. Uh, for example, if they come in and they just buy a car charger, um, in terms of what I would make as a salesperson, I'd make $3 on uh, a car charger. I'd, they wanted a case. I'd make two bucks, Bluetooth headset. I'd make I think uh, ten bucks. But I would find out what it was they needed. And often, if they came in and they were with Sprint, and they were tired of the service and tired of the phone, I just said to myself, well, maybe they would be better off if they had something else. So it uh, it worked very well. It solved problems for them. A lot of the time with cell phones, you didn't have to put a lot of money up front. There's always you know, free phone deals and stuff like that. So I wasn't taking any more out of the money out of their wallet. Um, in fact, sometimes I saved them money on their monthly bill because they were paying for minutes or data, text messages, like stuff they didn't need. And they went out really happy with a new phone. And instead of making 3 bucks for the car charger or 2 bucks for the case or 10 bucks for the headset, you know, depending on where I was at on my goals, I'd be making anywhere between $50 and $100 commission for that one sale. So, All right, the fourth step is give them the solution. So now that you've diagnosed the problem, you are able to prescribe the appropriate solution. We talked earlier about lead generation marketing. So if your lead generation marketing has been good enough, you naturally have the perfect prospect that needs your solution in front of them right now. Well, Ron, that's a, a great point about lead generation marketing, and I, I want to touch on that a little bit. Uh, we don't have too much time, but, I mean, I've done entire seminars uh, covering lead, lead generation marketing in my Marketing Masters ABQ group, uh, but I did want to touch on it and expand upon it a little bit. Um, you know, basically with lead generation marketing, you have some kind of automated system that attracts and then sifts and sorts prospects to find out who's qualified, who's a good fit, and maybe who is not, so that when you then deliver those prospects into your sales process, you really have uh, a better chance of closing because you're working with the right kind of uh, prospect. So uh, you're, you're offering something of value, typically some kind of free piece of information, a report, a CD, a video, some kind of e-course, some kind of checklist. Something that is something that the prospect wants and can benefit from and maybe even solve the problem they have uh, before you even get into the sales process. And so when you run a prospect through this lead generation system, when you're in front of them, the selling process really becomes uh, 
a lot easier. In some cases, it's a, it's a pay to complete, if you will, because they're so positioned when they get to you that, that closing that sale becomes a, a simple process. Okay. So the next part of giving them the solution is the presentation time. So this is where you show them what you have. Let me show you my line. You demonstrate that the inventory that you have, again, this doesn't have to be physical inventory, but whatever services it is that you offer, the inventory you have available is the correct product or service for their problem. So years ago, I uh, sold athletic shoes. I worked for a company called The Athlete's Foot. It was a higher-end shoe store. A lot of runners would come in with problems with their running shoes, and they trusted us because we took a very professional approach. Uh, whether it was a high arch in their foot that was giving them problems, too narrow, too wide, maybe they had shin splints. A lot of runners suffer from shin splints. Well, they would tell me what it was they were looking for, and the first step in the process was to accurately measure their foot. Now, they've had their foot measured when they were a lot younger, but, you know, I can't remember the last time, you know, now that I, I haven't worked for a shoe store for 15 years. I couldn't tell you the last time I actually measured my foot. I just know that I wear a size 12, and every time I go looking at shoes, I just go right to the size 12. But if you go into the athlete's foot looking for uh, some athletic shoes, they're going to accurately measure your foot, make sure the width is correct, maybe you have a narrow foot, see what your arch is like, and see what the true size is, because Believe it or not, different brands of shoes run differently size-wise. And then they would, uh, and then I would prescribe this, the correct solution. Now it was great because I had to go to the back to get whatever it was shoe they wanted. That we had one shoe out. I think it was always the left shoe that was out on the sales floor, and they would say, "I want to try this in a size eight. So my step was, my first step was to, well, let's let's just uh, take a look quickly at your foot, make sure everything's. Um, good for the brand shoe you're looking at. Then they had their shoes off, and I'd go to the back. So it's not like they could run out and escape. They they felt like they were being treated very, very well, much like the doctor treats you. And I'm not saying they looked at me like a doctor, but I took a more um, professional approach to it. So I'd go to the back, and they sat out there and waited for my prescription. So sometimes they would come in looking for a specific shoe. So they would say, you know, I want the new Nike Air Max. So I would show them that shoe, but while I was in the back grabbing the Nike Air Max in the size 12, I would also grab two other ones that I thought were pretty comparable. So I would say, look, you know, Nikes run a little narrow sometimes, um, but, you know, Sauconies have great shock absorption. And for your shin splint, this might be a good option. So why didn't you put the Nike on the left foot and put the Saucony on the right foot and see what you think? Well, sometimes this would double the sale because they came in wanting the Nike Air Max, mainly because they thought it looks nice, they like the colors, but they want another shoe that they can go run in, so they would buy the Nikes and the Saucony, and I'd make twice the money as a salesperson. And, you know, some people might have a problem with that. You know, Ron doubled his sale. Uh, the prospect spent a lot more than he originally planned when he walked into the store. But it, it wasn't because of any manipulation or hard selling uh, on your part, Ron. It was really you were showing the prospect a better solution to his problem, and you did it in a way that the prospect not only wanted that solution, but also was willing to pay for it. So sometimes we have a mindset that, um, you know, if we if we upsell or we try to sell additional items that, you know, we're just uh, trying to, to pad our own commission. But it's, if you focus on the prospect and solving his problem, and if that results in a bigger sale, that that, pros that customer then is, is pleased with and walks away happy, uh, everybody wins, and that's okay. Good point. Good point. 
So that brings us to our fifth step for sales success, and that is overcoming the prospect's objections. Now, this is the part of the sale where people start to feel a little awkward if they're not a seasoned salesperson. And again, I know I've used examples of retail or food, but this could apply to any business, any product, any service. Um, now that your presentation has been given and you've showed them your inventory and you've showed them the Nikes and the Sauconies or you've talked about that, it's time to overcome the objections that they have. Uh, Dave D. is the chief marketing officer for GKIC, uh, which is a international marketing and consulting firm that I study a lot of their marketing from. And he teaches a strategy that's very effective. He teaches to make a list of all objections that your identified prospect is going to have in advance. And sometimes when you're learning how to, 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 to do a certain sales job, so if you're learning how to sell electronics and you've you're got a new job at Best Buy, they're going to teach you a lot of the objections that the customer is going to come up with. But if you're your own business owner, if you're your own boss, um, you've got to teach yourself, and sometimes that can be hard, which is always good to have an accountability coach or a business coach like Rick or myself or Carrie Stewart or someone that you, you think that can help you um, to hold you accountable for that. So make a list of all these objections that your prospect's going to have, and then it's your job um, during the prior step, step four, giving them the solution, to handle those objections in the context of your presentation. Well, absolutely, and it's a very powerful technique. Uh, no matter what business you're in, you know there are going to be certain objections, certain questions that routinely come up with just about every prospect. And so some salespeople think it's better not to mention these things because if they bring it up, that's going to be an impediment uh, to getting the sale, and they want to just gloss over it or hope that it doesn't become an issue. But you know your business. You know the questions people have, the objections they have, you know those things in advance. So why not just bring them up and address them right up front before the prospect even asks these questions? So it also differentiates you from other salespeople who are afraid to do this. So it's very powerful if you do this. Like Ron said, just make a list, sit down and write it out. What are all the, the possible objections and all the possible questions that they could ask? And then how do I respond to those? How do I overcome them? But the key is not waiting until the question or the objection comes up. It's to work it into your initial presentation so that those questions and objections are already addressed and then they don't become an issue later on in the sales process. So a good salesperson will know what the objections are going to be simply by reading or interacting with the prospect. And I mean, you're not going to know everything, but you can tell by going through the process, through the sales process with them, which way the conversation is going to go. Don't be that guy from the bank that just has your one way of selling and hoping that that one way is what's going to close the prospect. So when I sold cell phones, you know, I did it so much and I practiced it so much and you know, they did they did overwork me. I did work, you know, 5 6 days a week open to close. I had a lot of fun doing it though. But I did it so much that I knew exactly what they were going to say as their objection before it came out of their mouths. I already had three different rebuttals prepared for every single objection, and it was almost like a game to me. Um, the toughest part, though, was reading the process correctly to decide which one of the rebuttals would work best, because not only did I know what the rebuttal was going to be, I knew exactly what their reaction, I'm sorry, their objection was going to be. I knew 
what their reaction was going to be to each of the three rebuttals that I did and I, which way did I want the sale to go. So in a way, the sale was a choreographed experience. And if you can make your sales process, um, and Dave D., who I mentioned earlier, talks about this. Dan Kennedy, the, the leader of the GKC Corporation, talks about this a lot. If you can make your sales process a choreographed experience, it makes things a lot easier. And when I say choreographed, I don't mean one way of doing it. I mean, if this, then that conditional uh, a conditional map, kind of. If they say this, then we're going to go that way. If they say this, we're going to go that way. And have a matrix of things available uh, in your arsenal to to go after. So, again, the toughest part was reading them correctly. That way I knew which rebuttal to give, and then I knew where to go next. So handling objections during the context of the presentation is only going to help you close more sales. But you do have to be ready for the surprise ones, okay? But the longer you do it and the more you practice it, the less surprises there are going to be. And that's why, again, it's good. It's important to have an accountability partner, a business coach, a mastermind group. Uh, Rick and I have mentioned our mastermind group in seminars before. We're in the same mastermind group. We hold this group very high in our hearts because we can get these kind of issues out and practice with them. We take issues in our sales process and say, here's where I'm having an issue. And our mastermind partners come in and help out and give us another perspective. And a mastermind group can be anywhere from four to seven people. Um, and you work on your once a month. We highly recommend you get involved in something like that. If you do have a website that you control for your business, um, a great strategy that I picked up from someone else and implemented is an FAQ, a Frequently Asked Questions page, that addresses the biggest objections that you receive. So if you've got that list of the top ten objections that people have, make those objections Frequently Asked Questions on your website. And then if possible, which the way technology is now, it makes things very possible, you can take a look at my website. So if you go to justdinein.com and click on the tab to the right that says For Your Info, you will see that I've made five videos, I think, or four or five videos for the four or five top objections that we get or questions that we get. And I've made them videos. So you go to justdinein.com, click on For Your Info, you'll see these videos. And I used a very simple video software um, to, to create these. It took me about 10 minutes per video, and it's really enhanced the customer's experience and helped me overcome more of their objections. And with it being on the website, I could be sitting here enjoying a nice cup of tea, not even talking to my prospect, yet my website is addressing the objections for me. So the sixth step to success in sales is asking for the sale. Now, Rick, I know you're a big fan of the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? Uh, well, if, you know, having watched it 25 times, it makes me a fan, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so in, in, in the honor of my good friend Rick G., I've got a quote I wanted to give that Alec Baldwin gave in Glenn, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And he said, only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line that is dotted. Now, they're not going to sign if you don't ask them to. And furthermore, they're not going to sign on that dotted line if you don't give them a pen. They need those things to sign on there. Uh, Brian Tracy, a, a great business uh, consultant, says, telling is not selling. Now, if you've done everything so far correctly, this is the closing part, and this should be a piece of cake because your choreographed sales experience should naturally lead to when you're going to ask for the sale. Now, it's not about tricking anyone. 
It's not about manipulating them to get them to buy. If you've used lead generation marketing, if you've got the right prospect in front of you and you're going to satisfy a need, it's not tricking, it's not manipulating. You're solving that problem. They've got the disposable income willing to solve that problem. But you've got to ask for the sale. You've got to close the sale. The great Jim Ron, and I should say the late Jim Ron also, uh, often talked about how people would compliment him on what a great salesman he was in his early days. But then reality hit him, and he had this aha moment, aha moment when he said, if I'm so good, why am I not closing any sales? And he realized he wasn't asking for the sale enough. So you can ask for a sale in, in many different ways. There's, no, there's not just one way to do it. So you can directly ask. You can suggest the next step that it takes to begin this process. You can go with the alternative choice close, where you give them one option or the other option. Which one? Which way do you want to go? Um, I can do an entire seminar, and I have done entire seminars on how to close a sale, but that's for another day. And when we send out the survey after this call, if you'd like to hear that on another one of our telecoaching calls, um, be sure to vote for it, and we'd be glad to talk about it. Yeah, Ron, you make a great point about uh, the close being the, the natural conclusion to the to the entire sales process. And one of the things one of my mentors taught me is that, you know, don't be a hard closer, be a hard opener. And that is to demonstrate your value and set the expectation early in the sales process so when it gets down to the close, it's really just the natural conclusion uh, of that collaborative uh, process. And to give you an example of that from my own career, I used to be a, a territory sales rep for a Xerox company uh, here in Albuquerque, Imaging Concepts of New Mexico. And the typical copier salesman, which was, uh, I guess, what you might uh, call my title uh, at the time, was they would go in and they would just talk about price and they would talk about how they were going to save them money and they would uh, just go on and on about the, the copiers that they had and the equipment they had and stuff like that. And what I prefer to do is go in at the open and really set the expectation for how I work and how I was going to be able to help that customer solve his problems. So one of the one of the things that I would say in the very first meeting with a new prospect was, well, here's how I work, uh, here's what I do, and one thing I will tell you is that I am probably very unlikely to be the low-cost provider for this type of service, for this type of product, for this type of solution. Um, I I'm not here to work with you on getting the lowest price. I am here to provide you with the most value, with the best service. And so I would just set that expectation up front. If, if the lowest price possible is your chief objective, um, I'm probably not going to be a good fit to work with you. Uh, there's certainly somebody down the street that I could recommend to you if that's, if that's your main concern. And so by setting that expectation up front, and then going through my process and showing them the value that I could add and how it would be different than some of my competitors, when I did get down to asking for the sale, uh, again, it was a natural conclusion of the process that I had set up ahead of time. Now, when it does come to actually going for the close, uh, again, you don't have to necessarily use any particular closing technique that you might have read about in a, a sales book from the 70s. There are some ways that you can ask for the sale that don't seem sleazy or manipulative, and again, it makes it sound like the natural conclusion to the process. And I want to share uh, a few of those with you, ways that you can actually ask for the sale uh, that are very natural. So here's, here's three of them. Well, Ron, it makes sense to me, but what do you think? 
Uh, one I learned from Brian Tracy is, why don't you give it a try? Or you could say, does that sound like a good fit for you? Or another way is, are you ready to, to move forward with this today? Now, what's going to happen when you, you ask closing questions like this? Well, maybe the prospect will say, yeah, it is a good fit. Yeah, I am ready to move forward. Hey, it makes sense to me. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and do it. Or maybe the prospect will say, no, you know, that's, uh, it's not going to work for me, and maybe you don't get that sale. But more than likely what's going to happen is that the prospect is going to have maybe uh, an unanswered question or an objection that didn't come up earlier. So by asking these sort of soft sales uh, closing questions, you might then get the prospect to ask another question, reveal an objection that didn't come up earlier in the process. Then you can address that question, and then, very important, then reclose. So if you ask a closing question and you don't get an immediate yes, there's more discussion, more questions that have to be answered, you always want to go back then and then reclose and then shut up and wait for the answer. Okay, let me give you another example. And um, on the surface, this might not seem like a natural business uh, sales example, but it is. So I waited tables at Outback Steakhouse when I was in college. I went to Arizona State University, and a friend of mine got me a job at Outback. And if you haven't been to Outback, it's a great steakhouse. They have really good prime rib. The consistency and quality of the food is always good. But more importantly, the consistency and quality of the service is always good. But people drove me nuts. And if you've waited tables, you know what that's like. They would never be able to make up their mind. Now, the way that you make money when you're a server, of course, everyone knows is you work for tips. But it's a numbers game. And if you're a salesperson as a server, you're going to do a lot better than just being an order taker or a clerk. So if I had an Outback didn't give very large sections, and what I mean by section is how many tables that you're serving. So Outback would give you two, at most, three-table sections. The nice thing was it was a high average ticket, so if the average order was about 50 bucks, so my average tip was about $10, 20% of a, $50 of a $50 check. But if I only had two tables, I, my income potential there was about $20 until those two tables get out of, got out of the restaurant and I got my next two tables in. So the name of the game was turn and burn, but there's a delicate balance here. You know, I made more money, obviously, if I served more tables, but I didn't want to rush people. So I had to ask for the sale early and often. And what, what's asking for the sale? It's getting their order. Because once they've placed their order, then obviously it takes time for the – they came into the restaurant because they're hungry. So the sooner the food comes out for them, the better. They feel more satisfied. They had a better experience. And if they had a better experience, they would tip me better. So I would get their order as quickly as possible. I'd go over to the table, and usually I would just ask, I'm Ron, I'm going to be taking care of you today. I didn't give the usual, hi, my name is Ron, and I'll be your server today. What would you like to drink? It was not robotic. You know, Sometimes if they were sitting on the same side of the booth, I would sit on the other side, hey, how you two lovebirds winning tonight? Or you know, they would order iced tea. I'd throw out, the, oh, is that a Long Island iced tea? Ha, ha. And that would get them to, to, to raise the value of the check. I had all kinds of tricks that I did. Um, but I'd ask them right away, are you guys ready to order right now? Do you know what you want? Or, and I'd do something like that. And usually they'd say no, so I would change it the next time to an open-ended question. So then I'd go over a couple minutes later after, you know, you read the tape. Back up. As soon as they fold the menus back up, they're ready to order. So you want to get over quick, and they're hungry, so you want to take care of them. And I'd say, so what's for dinner? All right, take the order nice and efficiently. Got everything, did a little upselling, added a salad, added a soup. 
Um, but again, there's a fine line between being efficient and hurrying them, so servers do have to be careful. So think about the last time you went out to dinner, maybe with a group of friends. So let's say there's four of you at the table, and there's always that indecisive person if there's not just all of you being indecisive. Uh, everyone else seems to order, but they have to order to force that person to make a decision. That's because the other people at the table now are asking for the sale. They're telling that person, look, we need to order so we can get our food out there. Now, menus are designed to give you lots of options, so it does kind of make you indecisive. Because if you go to a restaurant that has five items in the menu, you're going to say, this place sucks. I want options. But they, they schedule, they, sorry, not schedule, they design the menu to where you can look at different things. There's a certain menu science um, that people out there have proven. And certain smart, savvy restaurants write their menus a certain way to naturally guide the customer through there find what they're looking for, and make them pick a more profitable option. Because a lot of times you can't raise a price in a restaurant because it will deter customers, but you can steer them towards a more profitable item for you, which at the end of the day is going to make the restaurant owner more money. Um, so it's up to the server to ask for the sale. And again, asking for the sale is simply getting them to place their order so that way the food comes out quicker. The quicker the food comes out, the quicker they are done and the quicker you get your next table and make your next set of tips. So the final step to sales success, and this is the one that is missed more often than not, is upselling vertically and asking for referrals. And this could be two steps and make it eight steps, but I like to, the number seven, so I'm going to make it two in, the, two in the same. So the easiest way to get more sales is to encourage and reward referrals from people who have already bought from you. So what better people to try this on than the people that know you, like you, and trust you more than ever right now after they've made the purchase? So right now when they are purchasing your product or service is the best time to promote referrals and verticals. Verticals mean add-ons, and I'll get to that in just a second. Because most people think that the sale is done once the contract is signed. Once, once as Alec Baldwin said and Glenn Gary Gunn-Ross, once you have signed on the dotted, the line that is dotted, that's the end of the sale. And au contraire, mon ami, absolutely not. So when you bought athletic shoes for me when I was working at the athlete's foot, why did you not want a pair of socks, maybe? You know, when you bought your new cell phone from me when I worked at the cell phone store, I'm pretty sure if you came in looking for a car charger for your last phone, you might want a car charger for this phone and perhaps a Bluetooth headset to make sure you're being safe on the road. When you finished your prime rib, when you were working at uh, when you were dining, sorry, at Outback Steakhouse, I would always suggest Sydney's Sinful Sunday as a dessert to it. Furthermore, I would get you to fill out a customer loyalty card so that we could email you offers and follow up with you after you left the restaurant. So you didn't just walk out the door. Also, there was a lovely young hostess at the door, and she made sure you were smiled at and greeted. And during your meal, the manager or the proprietor of the restaurant had come by during the meal and ensured that your steaks were cooked perfectly. One program I'm going to share with you real quick before we close up the call is a referral program I did when I was with the cell phone store. We called it the 321 program. So the accordion, we bought an accordion folder from like a Staples or office supply store. I think it was about 15 bucks, and it's one of these folders that has um, 31 different pockets, and they're labeled 1 through 31. So each day of the month is on there, and on the day of the sale, I would take a little form. It was my 321 form, 
and I'd fill out a few details about the sale. So if the person had come in looking for a car charger, I'd put that on there. If they lived in a certain area of town, I'd put that on there. If they were a really hard person to close the sale on, I'd put that. If we talked about their daughter who was starting cheerleading next week, we'd we put that down. If we talked about their son that was going to soccer camp, we'd put that. So I had all the details of each person. Now I'd be selling anywhere between you know five and 20 phones a day. Uh, I couldn't possibly remember all this stuff. So I put it on my little 321 form, and if today was the first of the month, I would put that form in the fourth. So three days after the sale, I would come in on the fourth and look at what, what uh, 321 forms I had in there. And I'd call, hey, Janet, it's Ron from uh, from Go Wireless. I just want to make sure that uh, that the phone is up to your up to your needs. Have you set up your voicemail yet? Have you uh, have a chance to, to use it on the Internet? Blah, blah, blah. And also mentioned, well, you know, again, I hope PD has a good time at soccer camp. And she hung up the phone thinking, wow, how the heck did he remember that? And I didn't go in too hard yet for referrals. I waited till the next one. So the next one was two weeks after. So on the 4th, I'd make that call to Janet. I would then go to the 17th of the month, um, which was 14 days later, and I'd pop that in there. So on the 17th, when I came in that day for my 3 to one firms, oh, I remember Janet. Pete was going to soccer camp, and her little daughter, six-year-old daughter Debbie, was going to start trying cheerleading. So I'd call him back. Hey, how's things going? Make sure things good. Did did little Debbie go to cheerleading? Whatever. And you know what? My business is built off of referrals. Do you know anyone else who might need a new cell phone? Um, and I would press them for referrals then. And then the third step of three, two, one is the one. So it's one month after the seventeenth. So I'd, I'd keep it in the seventeenth after I made all my calls. And then the next month on the seventeenth, I would call. And this is where I would really start pounding for referrals. And so I'd saying, who do you know that works at a company that has a lot of cell phones? Who do you know that complains about their cell phone service? So again, three days after the sale, two weeks after that contact, and one month after that contact, it's three, two, one, and it works very well. Well, that's a great example, Ron, because like in almost all areas of business, it really helps to have systems. And so when you have systems for gener generating referrals, it's a lot more effective than just hoping that you'll get them. So you talked about a system there, 321, and of course you used a, a kind of an old school uh, technique using a, uh, an old-fashioned tickler file. There are, of course, software programs now that you can use that will kind of automate that process for you. Um, let me share just one other example uh, that one of my clients uses to, to actively generate referrals on a, on a systematic basis. Uh, this client is a dentist in the Vancouver area, and he runs a referral contest every quarter, and he publicizes it everywhere in his monthly newsletter, on his Facebook page, in the office. So what he does is that every time someone refers a new patient to his practice, her name is entered into a drawing. And then he gives away some really big prizes, I mean, really expensive stuff. Like one time he gave away a 52-inch HDTV, he gives away MacBook computers, stuff that has a high perceived value that, that almost anyone would love to have. And so if you know anyone who, who might be looking for a new dentist, you know, that's a nice incentive for you to say, hey, you should go check out my dentist. He's great. Uh, he does a great job. It's pain-free. Uh, the staff is really great. The, the office is really fancy. You know, just give him a call and go in and check it out. But that person might not think of that on his own to refer that person. But when he's thinking about that 52-inch TV, he might be more likely than to refer people. So now this is expensive stuff, but the cost of these prizes is really nothing compared to the value of the new clients that are created 
because that dentist proactively had a system for generating new referrals. So think about different ways that you can have formal systems to incentivize referrals and to get more of them. And it's a great way to build your business because that's money then that you don't have to spend on advertising by having some kind of giveaway system or by rewarding people for giving a referral. Let's say you have a, a program where uh, anytime you send me a referral, I'm going to send you a $10 Starbucks gift card. And then you're, you're rewarding the action or the, the, the behavior of providing the referral, whether or not it becomes a client or not. Over time, you know that the numbers are going to work in your favor. You know, for every uh, $10, $10 Starbucks cards that I give away, I'm going to get probably two new clients out of that, and it's going to be making the $100 investment a, a no-brainer. So uh, like all areas of your business, having systems for gener generating referrals is going to be a lot more effective. So that concludes our program on the seven steps to sales success. And we would like to open it up for Q&A now. Yeah, so if you have a question uh, for me or for Ron uh, about today's topic, uh, hit star six on your phone and you'll be unmuted and you can state your name and ask your question. Hey, Ron. Hey, Rick. It's Gail. Wonderful, hey, Gail. wonderful session. But I do have one Hi, question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was distracted and I didn't get to write down what the 321 program you use, Ron, is. Could you just repeat the 321? Yes, yeah, certainly. So the 321 program is, and like Rick mentioned, by the way, I use an accordion folder. Um, I've had some of our salespeople here use that. You can use Salesforce, or if you're looking for an inexpensive way, a version of Salesforce is a software called HiRise um, that will allow you to do this too. It's like 20 bucks a month, and it's by a company called 37Signals. Um, so three days after the sale is a follow-up call, or, I mean, depending on your business, it could be a visit. Uh, two weeks after the first contact, so two weeks after that contact is the second. That's when I start to ask a little more for referrals. And then one month after that contact is when I really start pressing and start trying to find out every single person that person knows. And again, it is about you know, reading the the prospect and figuring out if it is something they if they're not going to have any interest in referring you whatsoever, you can tell already. So you don't want to press them too hard. But it is worth it to still give them a call and let them know that you think about them and value their opinion. And then some some of my reps would take this a little further. And the one month after, then it would be like every three months they would call them because a year later they needed to upgrade their phone again. And guess where they came in to upgrade their phone? They came to us. So right. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Gail. Okay, are there any other questions? Star six. And if you're listening to this recording, you do have a follow-up question. There are some other ways to get your questions answered. You can email us at info at smallbizselect. That's info, I-N-F-O, at smallbizselect.com. Or, of course, as a Platinum member, you can utilize our open call-in times, which are monthly, and emailed to you as part of your Platinum membership or you can utilize um, one of our one-on-one -on -one times. Rick, anything else? Well, if we don't have any other questions at this time, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up for this month. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.